Hey, welcome back to Chasing Sunday. Uh, I'm Brian Davis. Yeah, I'm pro- Paul. <laughs> Sweet mercy. I don't even know how to say my name. My name is Paul Romaglevitt. Paul Romaglevitt. And uh, yeah, we are so grateful that you are listening. Uh, this is a, a podcast uh, for worship leaders to help them figure out strategies and, and, and practices to get themselves off of the treadmill of just running from Sunday to Sunday. And uh, we're so grateful that you are listening. We have a, a really special uh, episode today. If you've been listening to this season, you know that we've been uh, talking through uh, the basic core tenets of The Green Room, which is our, our coaching platform that we're developing right now. Um, and we're going to take just a little bit of a break from that uh, today to talk with our new friend, uh, Josh Packard, who, um, uh, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. So, you know, actually earlier in the season, we talked with Dr. Um, Todd Ferguson and Dr. Josh Packard also uh, was the author of a book called Stuck, um, in which we talked about in that, that episode. And um, But Dr. Josh Packard is a professor of sociology at the University of Northern Colorado, um, my hometown in Greeley. Um, he's the co-director of the Social Research Lab and the author of numerous academic articles, reviews, and books. He's also an active church member with a deep desire to understand the phenomenon of widespread church decline. And Mm -hmm. uh, he wrote a book a while back called Church Refugees back in 2015 that was pretty influential to um, Torn Curtain shaping into the direction that we um, turned into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, when the opportunity came up to, uh, invite him onto the show, we just kind of jumped at it and, um, man, uh, the, the show is, I'm not going to say too much more because I just want to yep. get into it because he's amazing, drops so much great wisdom and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's yeah. begin with, uh, Dr. Josh Packer. Well, we were super honored to to have you here. I I was just thinking when when we had um, Todd on the on the the previous episode, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if we can get Josh over here to talk too. I mean, because like I had mentioned before, um, the Church Refugees book when we we picked that up, you know, so the story backstory, you know, a little bit of of this was Brian was at a mega church in. Um, Highlands Ranch. I was in a large church in Denver, and um, we had both been working. We we went to college together at CCU. Um, we had been collaborators here and there for many years, both worship leaders, um, but uh, really hit a brick wall at the end of 2017. Um, and we, I had I had this nonprofit that had been. Uh, mostly writing and directing, producing, um, like, uh, plays and scripts and stuff like that for evangelistic events, like Dare to Share Ministries was, was one of those that goes around. Um, and, but then that was sort of that whole industry really kind of changed, um, after 2012. And then in 2017, though, we were like seeing all of our friends and ourselves go through this, you know, crisis a little bit in terms of our professional life, but also theologically changing and all this stuff. And um, we started digging into um, if this was just anecdotal, if this was just us, or if we started, or if we were seeing something else. And we uh, we we had met with a guy, um, Tim Foote, he, he runs a 
Slingshot, which is a kind of a placement um, organization that's actually up there in kind of Longmont, Longmont, right? I Loveland, think so. I think. Loveland. Um, and uh, he was like, yeah, that's what we're seeing too. And so I picked up that book, Church Refugees, and it was like, well, here we go. We've got like, there is data to support that. There's a lot of um, things happening. So that was that was a big part of helping us shift and create Torn Curtain into what it is now, which is really, you know, uh, invested into, I don't know, in a big picture, we call it um, cultivating the, or strengthening the creative soul of the local church, you know, by pr- trying to help prevent worship leader burnout or, or just helping people burn out well if they need to. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how we got here. I think I even have, yeah, I have in some of my notes from like when we were, when we were first starting things out, uh, and one of the, you, you were reading that book and I was like, I had written down like, maybe we could like, he's up in Greeley. Maybe we could find a way to like get time with, with this guy. Like, how do we reach out to, to Josh Packard? And you yeah. know, it only took what five years, six years. And, <laughs> and here we are. So, uh, yeah. Well, y'all, I can't, I mean, it's so, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, you probably know when you create anything or, mm-hmm. you know, an author, you just don't know when or if or how it's going to land or make an impact. But I, I'll just say that that's like doubly and triply true for an academic who's writing outside of, you know, not outside of my discipline because it was still very sociological, but it was outside of my like normal communication channels. I mean, mm-hmm. as you might imagine, nobody in academia cared about that book, right? It wasn't because it wasn't for them, you know, even though it was research based. Yeah, right. right. I had to go write a whole research article and get it published in a journal for anybody to care about that. Um, and so to hear those real life stories is just, it was, it was so, it, it was and remains so affirming. So thank you for sharing. How did, how did it come upon, how did it, how did you come upon this particular field of study? Um, what, what got you into it in the first place? Uh, so I, I came into graduate, I'm a first generation college student and first generation PhD. And that's, uh, that's a big part of, I say that because it, it's really important in terms of understanding why I do the kind of research that I do, which is that all of my conversations at home were um, all throughout college. Like, you know, when I come back to visit or, you know, be in the summers or whatever, I mean, I would be reading all these like philosophy texts and theology texts. I went to Texas Lutheran University. So whatever was, you know, required just for my general core curriculum. And my parents who ran uh, McDonald's fast food, the franchises, they own five, six, seven of them, whatever it was. Oh, um, yeah that, you know, my dad would be like, you know, I'd be talking about Aristotle and he'd be like, so how does that help me with my managers? Yeah. <laughs> so, like I was living up here, right? Yeah. And at home though, everything was like really down here and super yeah. applied. And I, I thought that those were really important questions. And, all, but it, those were not questions that were well received in graduate school. I mean, you go to a top 30 graduate program in any field, and they mostly just want you to build a reputation by talking to other academics and getting published in other academic journals. And that's great. Um, you know, I, there's a place for that. It just, just wasn't for me because I I kept having this like ghost in the back of my head, you know, whenever we would read Durkheim or Weber or whoever, um, of my dad saying like, how does this help me again? How does this help me again? Mm-hmm. And, and when I drifted into the substantive areas that I knew and cared about most, like religion, um, I just kept thinking like, wow, there's all this really great data out here. And there's really great techniques for getting 
more data and, and asking questions, but they're all just locked up. I mean, they're all locked up in these journals that, mm-hmm. that people can't afford and wouldn't understand even if they did because they're so methodological. And um, and so I'd scribble ideas down on note cards and always invite my students to say, you know, at the at the beginning of the semester to say, if you want research experience, I've got a whole list of projects that I don't have time for, but could work with somebody on. And Ashley came up to me after class in sociology of religion, actually. Um, and she was one of the brightest, maybe the smartest student I ever had. Um, mm. and she's like, what, what can, what, what can we do? She was, her husband is a worship pastor here, Kyle Hope, or was when they lived here. Uh, uh, and then, um, so we just, I was like, this is a, I was like, we know what the nuns are, right? The nuns are people who check no, none of the above. And of course we know who the affiliated people are. They are the people who check a box. Um, but what about the people who say that they believe, but you know, they don't check the attendance box. What do we call them? Yeah. yeah. Uh, my field calls in the D church. I've never particularly, I, I understand that term. It feels really snarky to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Tom Schultz then at group publishing had was one, back in 2012 or 14 or whatever. We started this background research he was one of the few people that had written anything publicly about this he had written a blog you know the old kodak factory here he had actually got a tour that wrote about his experience of like a thing that just failed to keep up and therefore shut down and was making parallels to the church so we just Uh. asked if we could have an interview with it and uh at the end of the interview he's like you should you should turn this into a book i was like yeah okay maybe we will no you write the book and and we'll publish it i was like okay (laughs) so like we didn't even uh, I don't think I've ever published a book through a traditional route, and that was probably the least traditional. I've, I'd never done anything in a non-academic space before. Yeah. Um, but this just felt like, as Ashley and I talked about it coming back from that meeting, um, I was like, you know, there, there'll be a, the, the academic process is long, and there'll be a time and a place for that. But this feels like really urgent information that we should try and find a larger audience for sooner if we can and if he's going to let us write a book then we should write a book and she's like have you ever done that and i said no it's like how are we going to do it and i was like i don't know that's awesome she did the data analysis and i sat down and wrote and it's just it's things have sort of in my career extended from that point mm-hmm. but with that same central focus of like man i think sociology has a lot to offer i think you know we get out of our own individualistic lens a little bit start looking at some patterns and trends but um it can only offer things to people if we make sure we keep that applied focus on it. And that's what, you know, took me to starting Springtide and, you know, mm-hmm. the work that I'm doing now too, um, is, is all colored by that. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I would, I'd love to get into some of those, some of those numbers and some of those, like start to pick some of that stuff apart. Uh, I would love to know a little bit about like your personal relationship with with faith and with the church and and what that journey has looked like for you um and then you know maybe as as a follow-up um like how has the thing how have the things that you've studied like when you walk into a church now like what what do you see like what is your experience like uh so yeah what kind of give us your your background and your story um leading up to now and then like what what you see now as you walk into a church we grew up uh my parents had a, a coin flip at the dining room table when i was time for confirmation my dad's catholic my mom's lutheran and my dad lost so i went to the lutheran church <laughs> <laughs> so the inerrant uh method uh yes, as, as they yes. like to call it <laughs> Ca- casting casting lots as it casting were that's right it's biblical so <laughs> that's right um 
But, you know, if you know anything about marital dynamics, I'm almost certain that, you know, if my mom had lost, we're going for two out of three and then three out of five and so on and so forth. <laughs> I don't know that this was truly a random assignment. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, That's good. Uh, <laughs> um, but I really, I, I loved it. I loved the, um, you know, it turned out to be the right thing for somebody who's very analytical. Um, you know, I'm not quite as maybe uh, scholarly and thinkery as the Presbyterians, but there's something really at the heart of the Lutheran theology of saved by grace, you know, not through your own acts, um, mm-hmm. that then, you know, you are ideally then compelled to live a life of virtue to repay the grace that you've been extended. I love that. Like, I just, it's a, it's a framework that makes sense to me that calls me and I think can, can inspire and compel people to be the better and best versions of themselves, or at least try to be. Hmm. Um, and so that it, I was, it was a natural extension from growing up there to Texas Lutheran university where I was a campus ministry assistant and did some other stuff. Um, there's nothing fancy about Texas Lutheran University. It's a, it's a, I call it a sign up school. Like if you sign up, they'll take you. <laughs> but What's their number? Was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but man, did I have really great professors and really small classrooms. And for somebody who didn't know what he wanted to be, it, it was super. I got to try a lot of things, um, both in and outside of the faith based spaces. I mean, I, I did everything from run the literary magazine to be a campus ministry assistant. I was an assistant coach on the basketball team, even though I never played basketball. Like it was, it was great. Um, Fantastic. The so, and that, and that sort of yeah. that interest in religion carried through, um, got, you know, interested and involved in the emerging church movement a little bit in the early 2000s, subject my dissertation. My wife works for a parachurch ministry here. She works for Youth for Christ here, building a, mm-hmm. um, trauma-informed ministry that works mm. in and out of the Greeley schools. It's awesome. incredibly innovative and really important wow. work. Um, so we've just always found a home there. And now we are. We went to a, a non-denominational church when we first moved here. It was probably most people's either uh, first step into religion or last step before they would potentially leave. Um, and love that. Made a lot of really great relationships. COVID came, disrupted everything, blah, blah, blah. My son probably, we, we just recognized that we spent all day essentially doing religion in our jobs and we had no interest, energy, et cetera, for doing formal religious education for our kid, yeah. uh, but wanted that to happen. And so we, when we started sort of shopping around, I'm like, okay, where can we get that in a place that has a theology that we respect and is a framework that we give him some language to talk about this? Well, we're right back at a Lutheran church. So now we're right yeah. back at a CA congregation. Hmm. Uh, and I, as you can imagine, I'm sure you all find yourselves in these same positions, like the trepidation of somebody who is, you know, has some experience and or God forbid expertise, you know, in religion, going to church can be dangerous. Um, yeah. Oh, it's daunting, isn't it? Yeah. Because, you know, it's like the, as soon as they find out, then like you're volunteering. Yeah. And they've been this 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 congregation's been so great. I mean, I don't know if they if they don't know, but I suspect that they're just actually genuine. Like they don't need me to do that. And thankfully, because I'm not, I have no particular qualifications or skill set for local congregational ministry at all. Um, and it's been it's been a really lovely place to be and and great people. Uh, so I walk back into church now. Um. You know, I'm in, I'm I'm just encouraged and in, and drawn to the places where, uh, where I see people trying, and mm. and that's the 
Mm. Uh, nobody knows the pathway forward. Like mm-hmm. it's the only thing I, but what I can't handle and what, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've left midway through worship services before mm. just because I just, I, I, it's, it feels so disingenuous for leaders to act like nothing's going on. Like everything's fine here, nothing to see. You're like we're bleeding thousands or hundreds of thousands of people, tens of thousands of churches are going to close doors, et cetera, et cetera. But like, this is fine. Like, let's just keep doing what we've been doing. I, I, I can't, it, there's something that like resonates very deeply with me of like, this is the wrong thing to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is, uh, yeah. but let's try something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That man, that is so, that is so important to, to, I feel like to name that, that so many people are experiencing, but they don't often they come to church with such cultural reference points and kind of like baggage, a lot of shame, like they can't just say it. And so those, those systems continue to keep going on with the sort of emperors got no clothes on sort of situation, you know, and, and no, and there's, and there's the few people that are just kind of like, Hey, that guy's got no clothes on. Um, and then the police come and then was, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, was, I just had to take it. No, <laughs> um, but, but the idea is like, they get, they get kicked out of community really quickly, um, at least from from what I see. You know, is in way in different ways, those people get like sidelined or whatever. They get and then they feel it, and then they just they'll never speak up again. And if they go back to a church, they'll just figure out a way to hide um, mm-hmm. and 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 not bring themselves. So so thinking uh, how, through what the world has gone through. Like I was thinking, I was looking again at at church refugees yet last night and I was like, wow, 2015, this happened before the shit hit the fan, you know? And what changed? Um, Did, did the sort of the predictions Did the data continue to follow the same trajectory or was there crazy changes? Um, That's one thing I was like going, what what happened, Josh? <laughs> what in these, especially in the last three years, for sure. Well, I would encourage you know anybody who's really interested in this sort of as a, a more a more intellectual exercise. And if you like looking at data, I would encourage you to follow, follow um, Ryan Burge, B U R G. If you know him, I was just telling uh, Brian about him. I've been I signed up for his newsletter, um, yeah. and the last three have just been absolutely fascinating. So I mean, hopefully, yeah, I mean, I'll, it's get him on to come on and talk. Ryan, Ryan awesome. does great work. Um, the, it, it falls a little bit. I've always tried to make this distinction in my own work between like, I, I don't want to be interesting. I want to be useful. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, the stuff that like, there's a, there's room for both of those things. Both of those things need to be done. This is not me right. saying that interesting work is, is bad. It's just that that's not, I don't think I'm good at it. That's yeah. essentially like, I think I'm, I'm better at doing the useful work and, and yeah. doing the translation work. Um, Ryan's work is incredibly interesting. Um, you know, it makes you think about things in a different way. It challenges your assumptions. Um, and I, my guess, if he were here and he and I talked a little bit in the past, um, I I think he would say the same thing, which is from my perspective, I'm not so sure that the pandemic and Trump and, you know, the major changes that have happened over the last five years that they have fundamentally changed anything as much as they, which is that, that is an easy and convenient narrative to say like, you know, oh, these things have radically disrupted yeah, what was yeah. apparently otherwise great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, like that's the underlying assumption that you that's have to true. make, right? Yeah, yeah. And the, I think the reality is more that um, 
they were accelerants. They were accelerants to trends wow. that were mm-hmm. well in place. And there's mm-hmm. there's a couple of like really, you know, th- there's some really big trends that uh, p- that that have been at work for a number of years. In the 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 reason why the sociology matters to this is because it's been happening by like degrees, right? So it's been it, there hasn't been like a year where all of a sudden this major thing happened and then therefore everything was different after that. It's like, mm-hmm. and and the trend that I'm talking about most is this loss of institutional trust. So if we go all the way back to the, you know, if we go back to like the sixties mm-hmm. to today, um, you know, we've got 50, 60 years of data from Gallup and Pew and the general social survey and all kinds of social scientists showing that we just, we've essentially been chipping away at or eroding our confidence mm-hmm. our collective confidence as Americans in what social institutions can and should do for us by like one or 2%, 3% every year. And, you know, you get to a point now where, you know, like where Congress was never particularly high, right? But now like trust in Congress is at like 7%. And and the, and as Gallup just released earlier this year, confidence and trust in the religious institutions is at an all-time low. Yeah. Um, and it's not, so the, the importance of that is to understand, like you would have never felt it. It's like the old adage, like how do you, what is the boil a frog, which is a particularly violent right. metaphor. But, you know, it's just, it's been like yeah. one degree at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe lately it's been more than one degree at a time. It's been a few, but that trend has been almost like without fail every single year has been eroding and not just for religion, but every social institution that we've got, you know, you talk about the law, Supreme court, you talk about education, you talk about big business, whatever it is, every one of them has been declining. That is the thing that, you know, you ask what happened. Um, that's the thing that happened. And it's it's happened over the course of many of our lifetimes. And you know, the world always changes. That's not that's not particularly troubling. The the real big issue is that we now live in a low trust world, but we're still largely in the church is still using tools made for a high trust world. They're using high trust tools in a low trust world and they just don't work. Boom. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm wondering if all of this stuff, it kind of fills me, fills me with dread, you know, because I go like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And just right now I start to think, it was like, I've got uh, an 18-year-old an leaving the house for college, you know, in just a couple of days. And throughout parenting, adolescence, and teenager years, that is, in a micro way, uh, an anti-institutional experience. <laughs> it is like, I I don't want your I mean, rules. Teenagers are always kind of like that, right? I like, know. But on a mimetic level, is that what we're going through? Is this thing that it will even itself out? Hopefully, I mean, the idea of the American pendulum hopefully will kind of like swing us back into some sort of equilibrium. Or have we gone to a place where that we go, oh, we did tip a little too far. Is that possible? I, I don't know. What, what yeah, do I mean, so the, the famous uh, generation scholar, um, uh, Nihau, has been very open about this. He's saying, like, we're going through this fourth turn right now. Like, this is this is the cycle. We're, we're, we're going to hit the bottom soon. Um, and, you know, it, there's a whole host of things that come with that. I think it's I don't know. You know, it's it's hard to it's hard to really know how to objectively evaluate something when somebody has so much personally at stake. I'm not saying I, I don't I do not mean to suggest that he's like unethical or anything. Bad. Mm-hmm. I just mean like, well, how do you separate the person from the work in this case? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, it there is like 
gosh, I wish you could sit so, like where I sit, you know, like, uh, mm. is there, is there risk there? Yeah, there's real risk. I mean, you know, if, if, if you are a person who cares about the institutional church and you want to see it thrive and be vibrant, then yeah, there's, this is a moment, you know, if it's, it's sort of like, it, you know, it's sort of like uh, climate change where people have been saying, you know, like, this is coming, this is coming, this is coming. And now the entire world's on fire. And they say like, this, we told you, right. We told you this is coming. Um, and I feel like that's, that's how I, you know, I think there's, you know, me and a lot of other people who said, like we said, we told you for years, this is coming. Um, every research Institute that is worth their salt has told you this is coming and now it's here and the world is on fire. But, but, you know, a lot of what I hear about on a daily basis, um, weekly basis are the incredibly innovative, earnest, heartfelt, outside the box things that people are trying because ultimately what they care about is connecting people to Jesus. Um, or, you know, by the way, uh, this is not, this is not particular to uh, American Christianity. I mean, um, you know, the, the, uh, Jews are experiencing their own, you know, move away from synagogue life uh, mm. as well. And I have responded in some really, really innovative ways. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And and there's some things about their culture and structure and history that make that easier. Um, mm-hmm. You know, congregational life is not necessarily the center of the faith. It's it's the house is the more sacred place. And so mm-hmm. there's a little more flexibility there. Mm. Uh, but it's not just, you know, it's not just this church. And people are trying so many things. And places like Lily are funding you know, just hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of dollars of efforts to try and figure this out. And so I share the concern. I like the institutional church. I'd love for it to be vibrant. It, the reality is like, it's probably, if it's going to return to vibrancy, it's not going to be in the form that it took when we were kids and, or, or even in many other forms that it takes right now. Mm. Yeah. So you've, you've mentioned that, uh, you know, like, in your in your story about you know what you appreciate about you know the churches that are trying you know they might not be doing it perfectly but they're trying what what kinds of things are they trying like what how how are these churches that you mentioned what have they restructured what have they what have they sort of you know evolved in their thinking or in their practice that that seems to be helping at least in in your view um well Everybody's getting uh, VR headsets, and they're all in the metaverse. Ah, oh, fantastic! <laughs> fantastic. Uh, I, you say, what are they trying out? But it's it's like the person at this point is like, boy, collectively, not individually, but collectively, what aren't they trying? And I mean, including actually VR. Yeah. You know, like yeah. I was on a sure. I was on a thing lot, like maybe six or nine months ago, a, a church in the metaverse where people are like, you know, they've all got their different avatars. You have no idea who anybody is. It was. You know, even for somebody who studies a lot of this stuff and sees a lot of it, it was a disorienting experience. For me. <laughs> um, the wow. uh, the things that they are trying are, I, w- I would categorize them as primarily, I mentioned earlier <clears throat> that the church is still stuck using these high trust tools in a low trust world. And, yeah. and the ones that are trying stuff that is actually having any purchase or foothold is that they're rethinking their tools. So when I say, like, what's an ex- uh, what, when I say high trust tools, what I'm talking about are things that connect you back to the institution. So if you live in a world where people trust institutions, then all of the tools that you should be using connect people back to that. So you talk about your title or you talk about how long your congregation has been here, how many members go to your church, you know, or how authoritative you are. Blah, We're blah, Bible blah. based. 
Yeah. I mean, so, right. You want to point everything back to the institution. The Catholic Church, um, that I, I, I'm not particularly Catholic, but I work for a Catholic entity now. I mean, this is their particular struggle is how do you, they've got an entire infrastructure built around this. Right? So how do you point away from that? But in, in a low trust world where people don't trust institutions, the more that you think you're shoring up your reputation by saying like, oh, come to Bible study here on Wednesday nights. You've got everything that you need on this campus. Like you only need to listen to one source mm-hmm. for truth, blah, blah, blah. You're actually moving backward. So that same mm. thing, you know, used to work so well, 30, it's not a bad idea, Right. It was just, it was a tool that fit an era and that tool doesn't work as well now. Uh-huh. Um, different tools for different projects, right? So when we talk about what is a low trust tool, so what are some of the tools that we should be utilizing and are, you know, that I'm seeing at work for congregations that are really trying to recognize that they don't get the default uh, assumption of innocence anymore from people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people do not walk around thinking that institutions in general or religious leaders in particular have their best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do we counteract that? Uh, almost all of those are people trying to figure out how to scale relationships. Mm-hmm. So relational ministry, of course, has been a thing that's been around for a long time, but in, mm-hmm. but it's it, the stumbling block has always been how many people could I actually know? You know, if I'm yeah. if I'm one minister, if I'm one campus pastor, if I'm if I'm one preaching pastor, like honestly, uh, you know, maybe I can. Maybe I can know the names of 150 people in my congregation, but how many of them can I know? Um, you know, the carrying capacity there is probably 12 to 20. And, you know, you know, that's why we have, so we started small groups to do that, but like, that's not working at scale. And what is, so what are the really innovative things that I'm seeing that are starting to undo that trust dilemma and fill in that gap have been people who are, tr- who are figuring out like, okay, what if we were really intentional about how we connect with people? What if we tracked these things in the ways that other people who care about relationships, like fundraisers, um, you know, or salespeople, things that are much more transactional, but they manage hundreds of relationships, right? At, mm-hmm. at deep level. And can we use some of those tools or at least some of that mindset to think, how do I connect with people systematically? Where are we trying to move them to? Have we broken down faith development into stages so that I can check in with them and see where we're trying to get them from point A to point B to point C? And some of that stuff is what what might have once seemed artificial now communicates to people often like you you cared enough to write down that conversation like you have a plan for me yeah. you have a plan for me that you're tracking and like calling back up every time we talk and you know it's that nobody's paying especially for young people like nobody's paying attention to them like that and and it comes you know it comes across in this very genuine and authentic way it's I don't think we've perfected a system for it yet. My, at my wife's work, they use an app to track all their interactions with, with the, the young people they work with. Um, so that they never lose the thread of the conversation and they know how to like when to got a band concert that they're worried about in two weeks. Can they send them a text, you know, before encouraging them or whatever, all the way up to like, okay, have we had what, what youth for Christ calls an authentic Christ sharing relationship? We had a conversation with them about God where they didn't run away screaming, right? Did that happen? Like yeah. that milestone. Um, and that's a small example of what I mean by, like, you know, developing these kinds of uh, technologies, frankly, um, innovative processes that, you know, they move away from the big gathering on a Sunday morning or the party on a Friday night or whatever into one-to-one relationships across dozens or hundreds of people. Right. And I I find that I find that fascinating because it's what you bring up and I'm sure, you know, you have more, more answers and more examples than what you shared, but 
the first one that comes to mind is this idea of how do we keep people connected and how do we keep people cared for? Um, and you know, obviously like our podcast is, is, is far more geared toward, you know, worship leaders and the people that kind of create that Sunday morning experience using, you know, music and art and all those kinds of things. But, and maybe you can speak into this a little bit, how much of a role do you think that plays? Like what, where do you think, what do you think this does for that corporate worship experience? Because that's still a very big part of, of what we do when we gather, you know, as, as the church. Um, and, and so are you seeing any trends or, or things that people are sort of, you know, you mentioned those tools, you know, the, the high trust tools and the low trust tools, what kind of tools are people, are, are churches using in, within the worship context or the, the con- yeah, sorry, within that, you know, within that gathering that you feel may be becoming irrelevant or, or not useful anymore? Uh, such a good question. And I just actually, it was not long ago, I was talking with somebody who's a worship leader and he said, you know, he, he's, he, he pointed it out that the crux of the issue for him was what he called the echo. He's like the echo from the last song that we played on Sunday once upon a time, that all, that echo only had to last until Wednesday night, because we'd right. see him back. We'd see him back on Wednesdays for Bible study or for mm-hmm. confirmation class or whatever it was. And then you know some of that started to fall away, and we had to make that echo louder, right? Like it had to. We had to do something. And he's talking metaphorically, of course, right? But like yeah. there's something about that re- that worship experience on Sunday morning had to be so compelling that the echo mm-hmm. could last through to the next Sunday. He's like, but now where even social scientists consider regular worship attendance to be once a month, mm. you're talking about like, is that a reasonable expectation? Like, am I now, is my job now to create an echo on a Sunday that lasts five weeks, six weeks? Like that's too tall of a tie. Like nobody can do that. Right. Um, and I think his understanding and diagnosis of the situation is dead on. Right. Like, I mean, it's, that's so, and I think that's part of what you see this push for like, over the last 10, 20 years, these these bigger, more elaborate productions at worship is because they're trying to get that longer echo and and they're and in some ways manufacturing, which is of course why I, I think that that's related to young people, especially people anybody under the age of 35 saying, I don't know that that resonates with me, dude. Like <laughs> this is yep. you know, this is maybe yeah. feeling a little bit disingenuous. What they're turning to, you know. What we keep seeing that they turn to, um, because they tell us this when we ask in the surveys, but also you can just look at the, you can look at the data and the size of the companies and their advertising, but they're filling in that space, not with, not by relying on the echo from the service, but with all of these digital online tools. I mean, mm. you know, you look at Hallow is one of the fastest growing, if not the biggest prayer app. It's primarily for Catholics, but not only for Catholics. You look at Headspace or Calm. Um, you know, any of these prayer and meditation apps that people are using, um, I, I, I use Pray As You Go a lot. Man, the production, I don't know if you've seen it, but the production quality there is unbelievable. Um, so good. And, and and people are, you know, they're, they're attempting to find ways to do it. So you think like, what is the role of a worship leader in this new era um, to the extent that it can be more... Uh, of course, Sunday morning corporate worship always going to be a thing. Like nobody's suggesting moving away from that or abandoning it. Um, but recognizing the reality that that is not the only, or maybe for some people, even the primary way that they're going to engage. Right. The collective, 
Right. What are, what are the bite-sized, on-demand, um, asynchronous ways that people oh. can a, a taste of that, right? Yeah. A piece of that that right. keeps them going. I find that what I can't help thinking that what people are still trying to achieve is a scale that we had enshrined early, you know, years ago. You know, sort of at the pinnacle, at maybe of, of Christian political power in the 1990s or whatever, sort of like mega churches and Willow Creek and all sorts of stuff, and trying to generate that. And it sounds like it, what what's interesting to me is that you mentioned that a little earlier, which is this scaling relationships through tools, through technology, um, and where many people were were thinking of the the big room, the big box church with a lot of seats, a lot of people in an event together as a as a metric of success. Um, now the metric of success may mean how many people are engaging, but metrics got more granular because everything could be tracked and all that sort of stuff. Is it? And then off right now, obviously with technology using AI to scale, using, uh, really asking new questions about space, um, different ways in which people gather. Um, how is it that we're just still addicted to the same um, standards of scale, and then we just go like, but this is how we have to do it now, versus people fundamentally asking new questions about how to be incarnational, how to Maybe maybe we don't have to want the same things anymore. Um, are, is anybody asking those those questions again? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a really fantastic uh, um, online spiritual community called the Nearness that I would highly recommend people check out. They have journeys that last eight weeks. They're digital across the globe, but that but they're piloting with a um, for the first time with a local congregation. I think in North Texas coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, these are, in fact, the BBC just did a little audio documentary about it recently, like within the last week or two, that's well worth listening. You get to hear some users talk about why they're drawn to it. And it's people from all faith backgrounds, no faith background, who just have these spiritual religious questions. Because I, I love that, you know, what you're talking about. I mean, I think we know the answer, and it's hard to admit, but like the answer to why we cared about scale was because we had buildings to pay for. And we had staff. Mm. I mean, you know, like the the finances did and do drive a lot of that. Um, And understandably, I mean, look, there's no money, there's no mission. I understand, like, I've I've heard all of the, you know, um, you know, there's a reason we count nickels and noses. It's so that we don't just get preoccupied by the nickels, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's that we want to combine these things about, like, what are we here for? What's our purpose along with making sure that it's sustainable? Um, The, but there hasn't been necessarily, uh, you know, I, I would say that maybe sometimes the pendulum swings a little bit too far away from the trust part, right? Like, what if we actually just found out what people needed and met their needs? What would come from that? Because the current situation where we focus so much on making sure that we could pay our bills is going to result in what uh, some people are going to are calling the largest property transfer since the GI Bill, which is yeah, that right. there's tens of thousands of churches that are going to close in the next few years, and what happens to this? Like, we in other words, like. We spent, I don't know, the better part of the last half a century or more focusing on paying our bills, and it didn't work. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, the collective report card is outside of 
I don't know, the top five or 10% of mega churches that, you know, that just didn't, that didn't fly. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I feel like I want to respect your time and, and wrap this up, but my, my head is swimming with even more questions. Cause I mean, the, the, and I don't even know if to open this, this barrel of monkeys, because I don't know how to, um, engage or, or think of, um, Christianity within the historical context of the United States outside of colonialism, like, and manifest destiny. And that, that it was like, that was this constant push and then it was the buildings came and and all that kind of stuff so um it's a it's a fascinating thing of what you're saying and then just naming that high trust low trust uh language for for us that to me is just mind blowing yeah and and incredibly i'm just going to be thinking about this <laughs> all the rest of my day today josh thank you so yeah. much um, what can i i will ask just one more question yeah. um what what word of i guess encouragement or hope uh can you can you give mm-hmm. to worship leaders or just church leaders in general who are who are trying you know they're yeah. trying to figure this out yeah. and they're trying to do this what what are the what are the hopeful signs that you see or what's one one hopeful thing that you can say to to those who are leading our churches these days i mean there's uh, uh, there's so many like it's uh, yeah. one of the things that these last uh you know the last five ten years is i think proven conclusively um 20 years maybe uh, we've got a longer history than that but anyway like there, there's no the people who think that there's a pathway forward for organized religion without institutions are fooling themselves mm. there's just not like we need institutions to sustain coordinated human behavior in any realm, yeah. especially yeah. religion. Um, yeah. And so the importance of the church has not diminished at all. The, you know, having uh, trained religious professionals has not uh, diminished in the, in the slightest. People, in fact, I would say are more hungry for guides um, than they've, mm-hmm. they've ever maybe been, at least in recent memory in this, in this area. Now, you know, what does that tra- does that training have to take three years and then two years at some outpost and then another year of a, you know an internship before you finally get your own cup? Maybe right. it doesn't have to take long, right? Um, but I, I think that the role that religious professionals play and the role of the institutional church <clears throat> is um, just incredibly vital. We just don't, you know, what's the what's the counterexample? I mean, you know, you tell me if you can find the sustained non-institutionalized religious movement. I I haven't come across very many if any um yeah. and when you i mean if you i mentioned lily before the lily foundation as a funder you know if you just take one quick look at their webpage about what kinds of places they're funding and who they're working with um everything is about strengthening local congregations that's where they you know they, and I, I don't know i'm not saying they always get it right but my point is if, you, if they have that much money to put some, behind something where are they putting it well they're putting it behind what are the new institutional pathways forward mm-hmm. um We've worked with and know a lot of the people who get funded by them over the years, and they're just some of the most dedicated, interesting people. So, that, you know, the that's the other piece of what would I say is I would say you're not alone. Like there are hundreds and thousands mm-hmm. of people who often are operating in silos, but they're doing the same work that you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Thank you. You for have that. dropped so many great. Um, resources and links that I'm just kind of like, I can't wait to go back through this episode and yeah. look through all these things. <laughs> I am like, yeah. I am always hungry for that. Thank you so much, Josh. Oh, this thank you all. It's been amazing. Really yeah. Oh. 
So, um, yeah. What? So is as I understand, you're, you what are you working on now? Is it something you can talk about, like, or or keep give us a a, a little heads up of what what's coming around the bend for you? Yeah. Thanks. Um, uh, the, so right now I'm at the National Catholic Educational Association, Vice President of Research and Strategy, or something like that, uh, Operations and Strategy. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to remember my title, it just changed. <laughs> and um, one of the things I'll, uh, that I'll that I'm working on there is to help. Um, how can we further understand what it means now that we've got an entire generation of parents who are unaffiliated from religion or disaffiliated from religion, raising an entire generation of kids? Um, so we've been, you know, the, that trend of the nuns has been coming for a long time. Yeah. And everybody's talked about that, but now those people who are leading the charge of the nuns are becoming parents. And what does that even mean? You know, obviously, in the context of my immediate work, people are concerned about what does that mean for religious education in a Catholic setting. But the stuff mm-hmm. that we'll be working on out of that will have reverberations mm-hmm. uh, uh, coming up later at the end of this year and more into next year that'll speak beyond even just that context. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Can't wait. That's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Josh, thank you so much for being on our show and uh, and sharing your incredible insight and um, just uh, God bless the work that you're doing. We are yeah. we are um, incredibly grateful and beneficiaries of that of that work. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, God bless. Well, thanks. And right back at you. I appreciate I appreciate this, and it's been a it's a it's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. That was amazing. What oh, an incredible so, conversation. Yeah, so good. And the thing I loved is that like as much as he, you know, he you know, he's examining all the all the data, data, whatever you want to call it, like he's he's so in the he doesn't get in the weeds of it. Like he's, yeah. he's very quick to kind of get into like, and now here's what that actually means. Um, and so I hope that as, as you were listening, um, that you were able to, to glean, uh, some of that, uh, as well. And, and not just, you know, not just get so stuck in the, like all the numbers, but also like the, I don't know, it, it's, some of it is pretty bleak. Um, but I think that, that he does a great job of, of spinning that toward hope. He's Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. he's so hopeful and so optimistic Mm -hmm. about, um, about what, what the church is doing in the world. Um, Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the things that he's talking about to sort of, I guess, adjust to the way that, that the world is now, like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like any of it was really seismic, you know, like Mm -hmm. all of the things that he suggested, like the infrastructure for them are, are, it's already in place. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. really just about us sort Mm -hmm. of changing the way that we think about how we operate. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I found it, you know, a lot of the, we're, we're going to list all of the, like the resources and a lot of those links that he talked about. We can, we can put those in the show notes for you. Um, but but that idea of like you know basically trying to that that echo from the end of mm-hmm. the service on Sunday to you know whenever you're going to see these people again you know like how how do we keep that sort of reverberating in people's lives outside of the Sunday morning experience and and you know he mentioned some apps and things like that mm-hmm. that people are trying to use to me like that is a, that's a very that's a very liturgical 
response. Like mm-hmm. that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons that, mm-hmm. that the liturgy exists mm-hmm. is because it was designed to help people outside of that Sunday morning experience. Like this isn't just something that we do one day a week. Like it's something that we carry with us all the time. And so, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, there are, and he's right. There are so many great, you know, prayer apps, Bible reading apps, even liturgy apps that keep you reminded of, of things that you can practice throughout the day um, that are just so, so helpful, but, but keep us, keep us connected from a distance and keep that echo, you know, it kind of shortens that echo for us. You know, we, it's not entirely up to me as the worship leader to make sure that like they remember everything that happened on Sunday before they come back next Sunday. So I thought that was, that was really cool. Yeah. I guess I walk away with the the big thing, the big principle, I feel like it's a real timeless principle, but it just serves as a great reminder that um, all of the stuff that we knew what to do and that we had to do has been with us for so long. It reminds me mm-hmm. like of the question we we uh, come to often, which is what, or I have, I continue to get reminded by, which is what am I pretending not to know? Uh, um and that yeah, is happening that in all all the time in church like he mentioned it you know not only in the in the fact that the eroding of institutional trust has been happening since the 60s but also mm-hmm. like the picture of climate change it was like no no we have been saying this for generations you know for, right. since the 70s right. we've been saying it's happening it's happening it's happening it's happening yeah. and then people were like uh, what's going on and it was like not listen even since, i've been saying yeah not even since the 70s. Somebody posted something. It was an advertisement in a newspaper from like 1901. <laughs> so this is like the, you know, as the yeah. Industrial Revolution is yeah, really starting yeah. to like kick up and saying like, hey, everyone, the stuff that we're spewing into the air is changing our world. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you please pay attention to this? This was like, yeah, it was, yeah. It was early 1900s. It may not have been exactly yeah. 1901, but it's like. Come on. Like yeah. can we like who's who's going to start paying attention yeah. um to to these changes that are taking place. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I just hey, no, totally no, but I you. absolutely right. And it's like when we look at it from a church perspective, when we like big shifts in church history, mm-hmm. um, they happen slowly, but now is the time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's like it's not gonna happen tomorrow. Like you are in this moment now. So when he talked about um churches that are uh, in a low church environment still trying to use high church tool high trust tools mm-hmm. um that it doesn't work and we've been saying it doesn't work for so long mm-hmm. um and again it kind of even think i think about the parenting stuff and it's just part of the the insanity of growing up you know the yeah. insanity of being a teenager sometimes and the insanity of being a parent to mm. where you're like i've said it over and over and over again and obviously it's not happening because you still have you're still not changing and i know yeah. that as a parent i go like i know it won't change until they come to the conclusion on their own when it kind of hurts when it really makes a difference for them. And mm-hmm. I keep looking at the church going like, is it hurt yet? Are, are, mm. Is it like, is it, th- is it bad yet? Right. Um, and so hopeful, hopeful that I go like, mm-hmm. yes, it's bad enough for people to change. Um, sometimes get discouraged going like, obviously it's still not bad enough for people to change. There's a lot of things that I'm going like, 
really? Like with women again, you're doing this or with racism, you're doing this? Like we're not past this. I get so uh, discouraged. But Mm -hmm. then also seeing, honestly, I, I would agree with him that seeing a return to institutional, like, um, wanting the stability, wanting the going like, actually, we can't just blow everything up. That mm-hmm. would be destroying, that would be as just as destructive as as me not parenting my kids because um, they won't listen to what, I, to what I'm saying. You yeah. know, it's like, oh, they're just going to do what they're going to do. And I was just, I give up, I give up, just go yeah. and do whatever. Cause it's going to, it's only going to, no, it still matters that I hold the tension, that I have, that I hold a center. Um, and and I'm feeling myself kind of come back to those old forms with a new spirit and feeling like, okay, maybe I don't have to fall into these bad patterns, but not everything has to be destroyed. Um, so I, I think all of that I was feeling in this conversation and so grateful mm-hmm. um, that, that, that he had... Uh, he sort of articulated that and, and walked us through that. It was yeah. it was fantastic. Great interview. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, thanks to uh, to Josh for uh, for taking that time, mm-hmm. and um, thanks to you for listening uh, and and being so faithful. Um, if if you can, it helps us a ton. If you uh, subscribe or like or whatever the whatever the thing is on whatever yeah. platform that you listen on, just tell somebody uh, about just, it. Just just do it, or just tell somebody about it. Yeah. Like, hey, you should listen to this podcast. Uh, it helps uh, it helps us out, but it helps us help other worship leaders. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, so please do, uh, you know, yeah, like, subscribe. Uh, pat, you can pat give us money. Back. You can you, give us money. You can give Absolutely. us money. You can go to yeah. torncurtainarts.org um, slash donate uh, if you just want to support us that way. We, yep. we really need it. We, mm-hmm. the, the work that we do takes money. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for some really amazing, faithful donors who yep. give to us every month and, and churches yep. that partner with us. And so we're super grateful for that. But um, yeah, we're, we're going to come back next week. We're going to keep, uh, I think we have a, one more um, episode around the green room that uh, we kind of get granular about um, the strength um, pillar, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, a, a good good topic for us to kind of come out of this um, conversation with um, into, into those ideas. So um, super glad that you're listening. Thanks again. And uh, yeah, catch you, catch you on the flip side as they say, as the kids say, (laughs) the kids. (laughs) Okay. Chasing Sunday is a production of torn curtain arts and distributed by resonate media. Your hosts are Brian Davis and Paul Romig-Levitt with editing and mixing by Danny Burton. Torn Curtain Arts is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and your tax-deductible gifts make our work possible. For more information about TCA and to partner with us in our ongoing work, visit torncurtainarts.org.